We're looking again to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And the text that we're considering today is verse 10 through 12. Peter says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Now, as human beings, we have a tendency, it's part of our nature, to think that someone else has it better than we do. It doesn't matter what kind of situation we're in, how good we have it, or how poor things are going for us, we always seem to be able to spot other people who we wish we could switch places with. Some people resort to uh, the crime of identity theft even, right? <laughs> I read just a couple of weeks ago about a man in Virginia uh, who had a warrant out for his arrest, so he decided to steal someone else's identity uh, to avoid arrest. Well, he did that. He got somebody else's social security number and all their information. And turns out that person had a warrant out for their arrest too. So he still ended up going to jail. He had to come clean on the way. So those things don't ever really work out, do they? <laughs> but that temptation would certainly be just as true for these Christians that Peter's writing to. Because they're under the weight of persecution. Their lives have been upended. Things don't seem to be going well for them. And the temptation for them, just the same, might be, man, I wish that I could switch places with someone else. And Peter's given them plenty of reason to be encouraged. And I know we keep reviewing these, these first few verses of this chapter, and... I think it's necessary because it all builds on itself. But verse 3 through verse 12, when Peter wrote that in Greek, it's one sentence. How many grammar police do we have in the room? Really? I'm the only one? There's a book about people like us, and I think it's called something about like a guide to dying alone, right? Because people, <laughs> people get annoyed with you uh, when, when you try to correct the way they speak or write. But Peter is writing this one long sentence. It's like he just starts and he can't stop giving them reason to be encouraged. Even in those first couple of verses, he pointed them to the fact that they were chosen. They are exiles. They are rejected by the world. They are hated by the people around them. But he says, you are chosen by God. He calls them to bless God, to praise God for the mercy that He's poured out on them, for the living hope that we have in Jesus, that He's caused us to be born again, that He accomplished it through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That He has prepared for us a place in heaven. That, yeah, things aren't great here. Things aren't really going well for us here. But we have another place that we look forward to. It's secure. It's safe. It's kept in heaven. And not only is it kept safe and secure, but you are kept safe and secure. You will not fail to reach it if you have been born again. And then last week we continued that even though we have all these things to rejoice in, it doesn't mean trials will stop. It doesn't mean things will always be great for us, but through those trials we have joy. We can rejoice, not only because of what's ahead, but because of the work that God is doing in us now in making us more like Jesus. Your trials have a purpose, and because of that, you can rejoice. So really, so far in the first nine verses we've covered, Peter's just telling them how great their salvation is. We should be encouraged. We should praise God just like He's calling them to do because of the great salvation that was not only for them, but for us. We have received the same salvation. We have the same hope. It's a living hope. But then he gets to verse 10, and I'll just be honest, if I was writing this, I wouldn't have done it this way. Because when we think about these things that God has done for us, the things God has given us, it does cause us to rejoice. But our rejoicing is not rooted simply in our emotional response to it. Our joy isn't based in something subjective like how we feel. But he goes so far as to say that this hope, this salvation that we have is rooted in objective, historical realities. And he points us not just to what God is doing in us now, but he points us back to the Old Testament prophets. And that's what we're looking at in these three verses today. Verse 10 and 11, he says this, Of this salvation, this great living hope that God has given us, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what, that is what person, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Our salvation, our living hope, was foretold in the Old Testament. I hope you've got your thumbs warmed up because we're going to flip to some passages here in a moment. But the Holy Spirit that inspired the New Testament that we have and that's where we tend to spend most of our time as Christians, and that's understandable. The same Spirit that gave us the New Testament gave us the Old Testament too. We can't neglect one because of the other. We need both. A fairly well-known pastor a few years ago made the comment that we needed to unhitch from the Old Testament and just focus on what God has done for us through Christ in the New and I think I understand what he was trying to say, but it was said very poorly. <laughs> because you don't have a New Testament without 
an Old Testament. It's built on top of it. It's the foundation that's laid. All Scripture is given by inspiration. All Scripture is God-breathed. And when Paul wrote that, he didn't have a pocket New Testament handy. He was still writing it. He was talking about the old. Now he tells us some things here in these two verses that this message that the prophets studied included. It included grace, he said in verse 10. In verse 11, he said it included the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was a message of grace, and it concerned the sufferings and the glories of Christ. And when we think about grace in the Old Testament, we have to shake off this notion that grace was not introduced in the New Testament. Some people have the idea that when you have the Old Testament, you're dealing with hateful God. He's full of law. He's judging people, looking who's going to mess up so he can strike them dead. And then when we have the New Testament and Jesus comes along, he decides he's going to be nice now. He's going to have grace and mercy. But the truth of the matter is this. Grace has been present from beginning to end. Grace is an integral part of God's nature. God does not exist without His grace. We see that all through the Old Testament. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. He demonstrated His grace when He clothed them. He didn't leave them in their nakedness. He didn't leave them in the fig leaves that they had put together in their own efforts. But He took that animal, maybe a lamb, and killed it and used its skin to cover them. He clothed them. He demonstrated His grace. Even in Noah's day, All the world was wicked. God had every right to just flood the earth and do away with us. But what does he say? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God used Noah to build an ark to save people from the flood. We looked a few weeks ago, even when God revealed Himself to Moses. How did He reveal Himself? He revealed Himself as the Lord merciful gracious, showing compassion to whoever He wants to show compassion. God is a gracious God. He is full of grace. And even the Old Testament prophets, when they searched their own scriptures, knew that He was a God of grace. Remember Jonah. We saw grace in Jonah a couple of ways. One, Jonah experienced it himself. In the belly of the fish, right? He has disobeyed God. He ran from God. He gets swallowed by the fish. He knows he's doomed. He's going to die. And what does he say? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he was spared. God showed Jonah grace. But God didn't just show Jonah grace. He showed grace to Nineveh. And Jonah, in his complaint, said, Lord, this is why I didn't want to come. This is why I didn't want to preach to them. Because I know how you are. I knew if I came out here and preached and they repented, you would show them grace. You would save them if they asked. How dare you? So God, all throughout Scripture, is clearly a God of grace. But the prophets knew That even though they had what knowledge of God's grace they had, they knew there was 
a greater one who was coming, a greater grace that would be shown in the future. And they wrote of that. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 45. He said, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior? There is none besides me. And he says this, look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. What? All the ends of the earth? As far as they knew, Israel was the only people God had favor on. He says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. They're looking forward to something that they don't fully understand yet. Ten chapters later in Isaiah 55, he said, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. You come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. This is an invitation from God. Hear and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. And then a few verses down, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? He will have mercy on him. Let him return to our God. For He will abundantly pardon. Does that sound like a hateful, law-filled God in the Old Testament? Oh, God holds true to His law. But He is a God of grace. It, turn to Romans chapter 9, if you will. And one, this is a good place to find some of these Old Testament passages without having to flip through the whole Old Testament. Because Paul just quotes them all for you. Romans chapter 9 he said this in verse 25 and 26. He said, he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. It shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. This was something the prophets didn't understand yet. In verse 33 of the same chapter, he says, As it is written. Written where? The Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's in the Old Testament. Chapter 10, verse 11, he says, For the Scripture says... Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Two verses down, verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did you know that was in the Old Testament? 
We believe it. That's the plan of salvation. Whoever believes on the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting the Old Testament. Stay there in Romans chapter 15. Verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and to sing your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you peoples. Laud Him, all you peoples. Verse 12, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Paul's just quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the prophets. These are all quotations from Hosea, Isaiah, Joel, 2 Samuel, Deuteronomy, Psalms. And this is just scratching the surface. It's clear that God's grace in salvation is revealed throughout all of Scripture. They were looking forward to something that they didn't yet fully understand. A time when the Gentiles would be saved. But not only do they speak of grace, but they speak of the sufferings of Christ. Be turning to Psalm 22. You see, the the prophets were clear, even though they they didn't fully understand it, that the Messiah would be one who would suffer. In Psalm 22, see if this doesn't ring a bell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that? Jesus on the cross. But it was written in the Psalms centuries before He came. Down in verse 6, He says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. That's exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. They said, He says He's the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Be, save yourself. If you're so powerful. They shot out the lip. They mocked him. Verse 14 and 15 there he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. It's all what Jesus experienced. The very next verse, verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Look at this. They pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion wasn't even invented when this psalm was written. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my cloth- for my clothing they cast lots. That's exactly what the Romans did. They cast lots for Jesus' clothes while He was suffering and dying on the cross. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and 53. We're just seeing that the Old Testament prophets knew that the Christ would suffer. In chapter 52 verse 14, He says, Just as many were just as many you were, were eh, just as many were astonished at you. 
His visage, his appearance, his face was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He continues in chapter 53, about the second half of verse 2, he says, He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We could continue. Who else could the prophets be pointing to but the one that we know as our Lord Jesus Christ? They knew that he would suffer But they also knew that there would be glory. Now they didn't understand this. Some of the Old Testament scholars would think that there were two Messiahs maybe. How could it be that there would be one Messiah and that He would suffer and be killed, but somehow there would still be glory and He would reign as King? They, didn't, they couldn't put it together. They didn't understand how that would work. Even though it was clear to the prophets that the Messiah would suffer, it was revealed to him that he would be a glorious king. It was written in Psalm 2, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations to your inheritance. The ends of the earth... For your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's a gloriously reigning king, sovereign over the nations. One that we love at Christmas time in Isaiah 9, we get the first part. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But then he talks about how he's going to one day reign as king. He says, The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. The Old Testament prophets knew that the Christ would reign as King. They just didn't realize there was going to be a couple of thousand years at least between His first coming and His second but they knew and they searched to know this Messiah. But as much as they were given, coming back to First Peter, 
as much as they were given, they still spent their lives searching. They knew that God was a God of grace. They knew that the Messiah would suffer. They knew that He would reign as a glorious King. But that was about it. He said in verse 11 that they were searching what person or what manner of time he was indicating. Yeah, we know this is going to happen, but we don't know two things. What? Who or when? We don't know who it is. We don't know when it's going to happen. The prophets like Isaiah and Hosea would say things like, How long, O Lord? They didn't understand. Even Daniel in his prophecy looked at the angel and said, I don't have any idea what this means. He didn't know. Remember, the last prophet. Who was the last prophet? John the Baptist. He comes and declares that the Messiah is coming, and then he actually comes, and then John is in prison. And what does he send his, his disciples to Jesus to ask? Are you really the one who's coming, or are we looking for somebody else? Because if it's not you, maybe I don't need to be in jail suffering here. And what did Jesus point him to? He said, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the poor are having the gospel preached to them. Why did he say those things? Because all those things are the things the Messiah would do. So even up to the last prophet, up to John the Baptist, they always said, who? When? We know he's coming, but who is he? They didn't know who Christ was or when he would come. So back to where I started, it's always easy for us to think that somebody else had it better than us. It might even be tempting sometimes as Christians to say, wow, you know, the prophets had it great. God spoke directly to them. Like they didn't have to go and study the Bible. God just said it and they heard it. And there's a part of us that says, wow, I wish that I could be like that. But Peter comes along and says, what you have, they wish they could have known. The living hope and what you know of Christ, that it is Jesus, that it is Jesus of Nazareth who would come. That He would die for sins, that He would rise from the dead, that He will return as our King. They wish they knew what you knew. What the prophets sought and studied to know and understand, we take for granted. We have way more than they had. And we don't act like it's anything great at all. Have you lost the wonder of salvation? Are you still amazed at the gospel that was preached to you? Like Jesus told the church at Ephesus, have you lost your first love? They didn't have it better than us. We've got it as good as anybody can have it. We know Jesus. That He died for our sins and rose from the dead. 
verse 12, he says this, To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things that have now been reported to you. Through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. As much as they searched and as much as they wrote, I mean, the Old Testament's way bigger than the New. They did all that work. They did all that searching, all that study. But Peter says it was revealed to them that they weren't doing all that work for their benefit. Who were they working for? Who has the full benefit of their work? I do. You do. It was revealed to them that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. Thank you, Isaiah. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Jonah, Hosea. All you guys that we can never remember all your names. Thank you. They were working for your benefit. We get to know what they couldn't know. And what we know is built on what they knew and what they wrote for us. We know that Jesus is the Christ and that His plan is redemption for not just one nation, but for all the nations. Just one point of application before we move on. Think about this. The benefits of your work are not always immediately seen. They didn't get to experience everything that they studied and searched out as they looked forward to the salvation that would come through Christ. But they were still faithful. They trusted God with the outcome of their labor. And I would just make the same application to you. You don't know what all is going to come out of the work that you're doing. The work that you're doing, you may not ever see the benefits of. I read someone said recently that, uh, or they probably didn't say it recently, they probably stole it from somebody else. It sounds like a good saying. When was the, when's the best time to plant an apple tree? 30 years ago. When's the second best time to plant an apple tree? Today. Keep working. Be faithful. Plant the seeds, even if you may not live long enough to see the outcome. Just be faithful because you may be working. The work that God's called you to do may be for someone else's benefit down the road. Be faithful. I'm thankful that these prophets were faithful. The message that we've heard is the full message. He says that it was preached to us. Who preached it, who preached it to them? The apostles. That message has been preached perpetually for 2,000 years. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He came to save sinners. And we must go on preaching it. The prophets preached as much as they knew. When Jesus came, He filled in the gaps. The apostles heard from Jesus and preached to the multitudes. And somebody down the line preached it to you. And preached it to me. And here we are with this treasure. And what must we do with it? Keep passing it on. Someone said, the gospel came to you on its way to someone else. It does not stop with you. We must continue carrying the gospel 
that we have heard. And we must work in the power of the Holy Spirit. The prophets could only knew what they knew, and they could only write what they wrote because it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Himself worked in the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles preached, and the church began on the day that the Holy Spirit was sent to work among them and in them. And if we will accomplish anything that actually lasts and counts for the kingdom of God, it has to be done in the power of that same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that revealed Christ to Isaiah is the same Holy Spirit that is in you. The Holy Spirit that worked through apostle, the apostles when Peter stood at the day of Pentecost and preached and 3,000 people were saved, that same Holy Spirit is at work in you and through you if you will surrender to Him. If we will preach the gospel and proclaim this living hope that we've been given with any effectiveness whatsoever, we must do it in the power of, with the help of, the Holy Spirit. And then, before we wrap up here, he throws in this little comment about angels. You know, and it makes sense. If you're living like these people, you may be thinking, man, I wish we had it like the prophets where we could hear directly from God. And then Peter says, well, actually, they didn't, they didn't know it all. You know, they just had a little bit of information. They were working for your benefit. And maybe somebody said, you know what? You know who else has it good? Angels. Angels have it great. They get to live with God. They get to worship with God. They do His bidding. They don't deal with sin. And uh, they're going to be with Him forever. So just for good measure, Peter throws in this last little line. He says, things which angels desire to look into. This living hope, this salvation that we have, is something that even the angels wish they knew. That word desire is actually used elsewhere uh, to describe a sinful lust. And we know they're not sinning, but it's the, the force of that word that they wish so badly that they could see what we see. They desire to look into. It's like kids looking over the, the rail of the stairs trying to see who's down below. They're straining their necks. They're leaning, wishing that they could see what we see. Even the angels desire to understand our salvation experience. You think about it. They've been at work all along. We see angels pop up all throughout the Old Testament. They were there to announce Christ's birth. They ministered to Jesus in the wilderness after He was tempted by Satan. They were on call. Jesus said, if I wanted to, I could call legions of angels to come and deliver me. But He laid down His life anyway. They were on call, ready to go. They were at the tomb to give witness to His resurrection. They were there to comfort the disciples and send them on their way after Jesus ascended. I mean, they have seen the whole thing from start to finish. 
Even now they do God's bidding. They will be present when He comes again. But through all these things that angels experience, they will never be able to know what it is to be saved, to be redeemed, to experience our living hope. Yes, some of the angels sinned. But Jesus didn't come in the form of an angel to die for angels so that they could be forgiven. Those who sinned have been, they're doomed. Their fate is sealed. And those who are in heaven now look at the wonder of what God is doing through puny little people like us. I mean, I got nothing on an angel. Let's just be honest. They look better. They're stronger. They can get around faster. I mean, I've got nothing on Gabriel or Michael or any of those guys. And they look down and they see these humans who rebelled against God. But God is doing this with them and they wish that they could experience what we experience. So we'll just conclude with this question. Have you lost the wonder of your salvation? Is it just ordinary to you? Have you lost or left your first love? Peter has given us plenty of encouragement in these first 12 verses. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we go through trials. No, things aren't always easy. But friends, we have a living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand and pray with me? God, you have been kind to us in pouring out your mercy, giving us the revelation of your word so that we can know you and how we may have fellowship with you. May we never take it for granted. Give us a fresh sight of it. May we glory in our salvation. May we be holy people who live for the purpose of bringing glory to your name, the one who has saved us, and carrying this same message to those who have not yet heard. In Jesus' name, amen.